You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's such an interesting thing about just the human psyche. We really don't want to change. Change is a very, very big deal for us. And if we could just keep in the same mode, our, our, you know, our mind, our ego might just love to keep doing it, even if we're wrong. So on the Coach's Corner, I wanted to take some time to have us just evaluate our own relationships. Would you be willing to share a rumor, even if it's wrong, even if you know it's wrong, or that it might be wrong, or if you're just not sure about it? It's an interesting little thing or dilemma that I see in our human relationships. Sometimes we don't care if it's factual. We want the story to be there. We need the story to be there because it's going to help us perpetuate that end result we need. So when it comes down to it, um, we, we probably ought to be very careful with each other, with our spouses, with our friends, with our neighbors in spreading a rumor, a gossip, a myth, a story that we don't know. And even when we know it, we might not want to spread it because spreading a rumor is probably a sign that you're trying to somehow seek an advantage. And usually if you think about it, a rumor or a gossip or a myth, those are all, those are negative things, right? We don't tell a positive rumor or a positive story or a positive gossip. It tends to be negative. It tends to be so-and-so did this, they made this mistake, and we share it. Whenever you're about to share that information that you're not fully convinced is accurate, you might want to look at yourself and ask, why am I doing this? Why am I willing to keep saying stuff that isn't necessarily true? There is, um, remember, who you are speaks so loudly that it's going to impact the ability for other people to hear you, meaning your integrity, your character is so Uh, important, that it probably carries the messages that you're saying more than actually what you're saying. So one of the downsides of believing myths, not only are you uninformed or misinformed, but you also go on in spreading misinformation to others, which keeps certain lies, certain prejudice, certain beliefs in play. One of the most powerful things I think you can do to grow character, to grow trustworthiness with the people around you, is just be willing to not spread the rumors. Make a rule in your mind that the rumors and the gossip stops with you. I'm not going to share that. I'm not going to share the story. It's interesting, in my own profession, when I uh, talk to a lot of people, I get a lot of information, a lot of inside kind of information in relationships. And um, there's always an opportunity if I wanted to, to share it, but not only would it break a confidence, but I don't want to be the one that's known for that. I don't want to be the one that's known for sharing that information. And I found it actually does much better for my own reputation and for my own actually just sense of confidence that I'm not sharing these stories. It's just better. It's better for the relationship. It's better for everyone. And communication is always going to be about trustworthiness. Who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. Your character will always precede your communication, which means you can't communicate at a higher level than you have the character to deliver it. 
if you don't have the integrity to say something, you can't say it. You just can't say it. Right? I mean, it's just think of whatever politician that's had a sex scandal. They're not the one to be talking about morality. So the minute they've had a sex scandal, they immediately have to give up the moral front ground on, uh, you know, chastity, morality. They can't. They don't have the power. And I think that's if you want power with people, don't just assume it's your position. Don't just assume it's your title. It's not being a senator. It's being a senator that people will actually listen to. People will actually trust. And there's two things I teach that are a big part of, I believe, somebody being trustworthy. They got to have the character to deliver. They got to have the integrity, the history. They've got to have, you know, the path that they've lived. They've got to have insight on it. They've got to have that power. They also have to have the competency to actually do it. So we can believe the myths all we want. We can believe uh, just the lies all we want. But in the end, it's going to come out in the wash. People aren't going to trust you. Now, what's weird is 30 or 40 years ago, that mattered a ton. But now it seems like, even in our own presidency elections, trust isn't as big of a deal. We always throw out these numbers about the trustability or trust that the people have in certain leaders, and yet we vote for them. So I think a lot of people are actually now starting to separate. I don't need to trust you as long as you're competent. I don't need to trust your character as long as you've got competency. But to me, that's ludicrous, right? We've got to trust our doctor's character that they're actually going to show up for the surgery that day, that they're actually going to do the surgery they say they're going to do, that I actually need the surgery because they said I did, and I've got to trust that you're competent, that you're not going to leave a scalpel in me. Two things are essential in every communication. Your character has to be there and it will precede you. And your competency has to deliver on the message. Now, if you want power with people, don't take the myth. Start noticing what you're believing. When you hear something that's too extreme to believe, don't believe it. Trust your gut on that. If it's too good to believe, don't believe it. I was in Mexico and they would schmooze me so much to sell me a trinket, a keychain. Hey, brother, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. I believe in God. They're schmoozing me. I have no idea. But my gut's like, eh, eh, get away, get away. Don't trust this. Don't trust this. Now, it's a $1 trinket. But when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your relationships, don't be somebody that spreads the myth. Don't be somebody that spreads the rumor. Don't be somebody that spreads the gossip. I just wouldn't do it. In the end, people will trust you far more for what you won't do than you just jumping in. It might buy you a little, like, you know, good will from a bunch of people around you that like spreading gossip, but I'd just abstain. I might even take a position like, guys, let's not talk about her. I'd hate to know that when I'm not here, you guys are talking about me this way. Just don't participate. It's a really powerful thing. And um, sometimes sticking up for the, the person that is the, the butt of the joke or the, you know, the, the poor person that's being beat down by the myth, stick up for those people. In the end, it'll grow character. Sure, it'd be easier to gang on and, you know, just pile on. But the reality is, 
your character is going to matter. And it matters today because how I grow character today determines who's going to believe me tomorrow. Do you buy it? Fairly basic stuff. Man, I wish our politicians would buy it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, When it comes to cheating, we've been talking about international sports and FIFA, for example, and the the level of cheating there. Also, um, we've seen it in the Olympic scandals. We've seen it uh, even locally. I mean, not locally, but on a on a more um, kind of in your face level. Uh, Pete Rose was has basically just admitted that he actually did bet on games while in the pros, but not his games apparently. But you know, cheating from Deflate Gate. Some will just say that's not a big deal. Our last guest, Dr. Declan Hills, like there's a difference between cheating to win versus cheating to lose. Uh, cheating to lose is is an epidemic uh, where they're actually basically fixing games worldwide. But where does this begin, and and where does it? Where do we take it for our kids? Um, it's I see a lot of situations where even in little league sports, it's a win kind of at all costs. And so you can win the game and lose your character, right? You can also lose the game and gain character. Character is probably the thing I'd end up focusing more on when it, uh, when it, with my kids, is start teaching your kids about, in the end, everything we do when it comes to sports is, gonna, is going to increase our character or de- decrease our character. And, and we probably need to watch out because um, – Kids at seven, eight, nine, they might be fibbing or lying or cheating for different reasons than you as an adult might be interpreting. You know, they might be doing it because they just really like to win. They might be doing it because uh, they didn't, you know, know it was that big of a deal. So be careful calling your kid a cheater. Be careful calling your child a liar. Uh, labels aren't always going to help, you know. In the end, it's it's got to be more than just a label. You, we've got to be teaching our kids and trying to understand what's really going on. You might want to find out why they do what they do. I've seen kids cheat to you know win Scrabble or just other games just because they're seriously competitive. But you might want to also build a relationship with your kids where we're we're talking about some of these bigger issues. Talk about Lance Armstrong. Talk about. Um, winning at all costs and, you know, the Machiavellian way of, you know, the ends justify the means. If you believe that as a parent, that it's okay, as long as your kid can get a scholarship, you can break a few of the rules, can't you? It's a really intense thing. And and the more I work with athletes and um, especially athletes that have had a lot of talent that has taken them to another level, the more I realize that these people haven't lived a normal life. A lot of athletes I work with that are even professional or even Olympic athletes, they a lot of times have never been told no. They've never heard no. They have always been able to be winning, and if as long as you're winning, no is not going to be in your vocabulary. So watch out because sometimes we might be esteeming sports and athlete and athletics at a higher level than even character and, and development and growth. So don't assume just because your boy is playing sports that uh, they're just learning good character. You probably need to make sure you talk about it. Uh, if you see a kid throw their bat because they just struck out, that's probably something that needs to be discussed. 
We've got to teach our kids to win gracefully, to lose gracefully, and um, not just, you know, ah, he's just a boy, he's super competitive. No, at some point, show some character and, and teach that character. I think one of the best ways to do it is basically demand it. Like, tell your kids, this is how we are. Pull them out of the game. Don't let them play if you see them throwing the bat. Don't let them play if you see them do something dirty or a penalty on the field. And I think if we teach it to them early and we don't just keep justifying bad behavior by boys will be boys, then then you might be able to take it somewhere. Um, I also would focus more on when they're doing something right than when they're doing something wrong. Don't just try to catch your child doing something wrong. Start noticing when they're actually showing good sportsmanship, when, they're act- when they are walking back after a strikeout and doing it effectively. That's such a great skill. And the best way I've ever found to actually teach it is to see when it's happening. Uh, get into your kids. Find out why they might be lying. Have a chance to talk to them after every game. Talk about what happened there. Hey, I noticed you threw your bat when you got in the dugout. Uh, what's that about? And then go back to our, our discussion of principles and character. Um, keep your cool. If you end up having a beat down and because your child did strike out, if you end up making a big deal about that, you are going to be creating pressure, and that pressure might be the reason they have to they feel compelled to cheat or to do something wrong anyway folks it's it's parenting as well and it sounds like according to declan hill our the interview that we had earlier, you know the United States has a really great benefit here where we're not as caught up in some of these international cheating scandals. But uh, if we're not careful, we probably could be. So let's, let's, let's cut it off and let's start teaching, teaching our kids. Start with character, integrity, and model it for our kids. Don't just ask our kids to have it. You model it as their parents. We're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're trying to get our next guest on the line, and uh, while we're waiting, I was just going to talk to you about my um, one of my great new revelations. I've had an epiphany, and it happened a few days ago when we were interviewing Tim Pitchell. He said, you know, a lot of our time management issues are emotional management issues. And then it just and it dawned on me because of what I do um, outside of the show. A lot of our relationship issues are emotional management issues. So think about this. When you think of your fight, the biggest argument you have with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, um, do you have... Do you lose control? Do you feel rejected, dejected? Do you get angry? Do you feel hurt beyond measure? Do you get sick of it? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're worn out. A lot of this, if you notice, they're all emotions and they're emotional reactions. They're emotional management um, issues. And as, as I've been working with couples, I had a couple come in the other day and basically the story goes like this. She, um, they were signing up, they went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while they were there, part of the deal was they had to go listen to a time, uh, like a timeshare meeting. 
right? Where a timeshare is where you go own one, whatever, 40th of a condo in Hawaii and you put $20,000 down and then you get to go use it once every year or whatever. So a lot of these companies, you know, they've got great resorts all over the world and then you can go and, and go to all of those great areas. So this couple is there just enjoying basking in the beautiful glow of Hawaii. And while they're signing up, it's a couple – the husband had been married before, so it's a second marriage for him. And, um, you know, they've had tension a long time. Uh, they've been married about two or three years, but it's been tense just because of, you know, trying to merge these new families and things. So as they're signing up for the timeshare, the husband is is entering their names uh, into, like, the register that they're there ready for their meeting. And he enters his name, and then he puts his – ex-wife's name instead of his new wife's name. And she, you know, was paying attention and noticed that. Okay, so what we call that in my business, that's the stimulus right there, right? That is now, that is the, this is the moment where the cage fight begins. And the minute the name was down, she saw it and she had an immediate emotional reaction to it. Which was kind of like, what? Prepare to die. And he, he realized what he had done and he kind of froze. He hadn't looked at her, his wife yet, but he immediately had his own reaction like, ah, oh, geez, I'm dead. I'm dead. Hope she didn't see that. And then he crosses the name off and puts his wife's, his second wife's name on. Okay. But that moment, created this situation that then eventually, because we didn't manage our emotions in that moment, it turned into about two or three days of not talking, one day of the man not even being allowed in the hotel room, so he slept on the beach like a vagrant, and all, um, and they they fought and fought and fought and then actually made an appointment to come see me while they were still on their vacation, and then they got in. So when I say relationship issues are emotional management issues, that's exactly what I mean. She had an emotional reaction to what was going on. He had a reaction to what was going on. And because nobody could control the emotion, manage their own emotion, or lower their partner's emotion, it became an emotional, you know, roller coaster and quite honestly an emotional explosion. So I wanted to take you through some tools and some ideas to help us all recognize that in our relationships it's if you don't manage your own emotion you're setting yourself up because the pain no matter what is going to be yours. Well yeah, but if I make it painful enough for him. But if you're making it painful for your partner, you're the one that's still going to pay, right? Because you have to maintain the pain in order to make it hurtful to another. So some rules, very basic rules. Rule number one, you are not your emotions. Because you feel angry doesn't mean you have to be angry. You can have a feeling as a human being and not ride it, you know, to death. You're not a dog. You don't have to just, you, you can think through this. You can process it. Why would a loving, decent, great, amazing guy write down his ex-wife's name. Well, because he's thinking about her. Maybe. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just not thinking at all. 
Maybe he's going by habit. Maybe it has something to do with the mere fact that for, I don't know, how many years, uh, eight, nine years, he was married to one woman, and he's instead got two hours with – or two years with this other woman. Well, yeah, but he should remember me more, right? Well, maybe. But you're not your emotion. You don't have to just react. You also are an agent that can choose and be what you need to be in this moment. You're, remember, emotions are there to teach you. They're there to help you. They're there to guide you. The reason both people were freaking out was so that we would pay attention to the moment. It, we weren't – we didn't the, – the wife didn't need to freak out and the husband didn't need to fear because this was catastrophic. It didn't need to be catastrophic. It was just, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Emotions are there to make sure we pay attention. They're there to make sure we take advantage of the right opportunity to handle something. And so we could have just used the emotion as a tool to help us. But what ended up happening to this couple is they ended up blowing up. They hurt themselves. They hurt each other. And in the end, it was probably because of their insecurities. We've got to learn that if you have an emotional response to something, it's, even if it's justified, I get it. You should be – if you were in a car accident that a drunk driver caused and it hurt you, you should be emotional and you should be angry. I'm not saying don't be angry. I am saying however long you allow the emotion to manage you is how long you will suffer. So our goal would then be to find another emotion. And one of the things um, we talk about a lot on the show is, you know, find your your best self. So that our lowest self will just take the emotion and run with it because we're afraid, we're hurt, we're worried, we're concerned. But our highest self um, will take us to another another level. This couple, when they finally got to my office, all I did eventually after talking to them is I showed them that they have many responses to this same situation – but I asked them very quite simply, um, if, if all of a sudden one of you were sick, if one of you had cancer, would, what would matter about this? And they're both like, well, nothing. Why wouldn't it matter if one of you, if one of you really had cancer? And by the way, interestingly, one of them is sick and it is scary. It's scary for them. The fear is the woman's afraid that she might she might be more easily replaceable if she's not already making an imprint on this guy that he can't get the name right. But it was out of fear she responded. And then his fear about how she responds created an issue. But all of a sudden, if we could get present and be our best self, which we tend to be when someone's sick, we tend to be our best self when we are more in our highest values and our highest principles. Things tend to work better for us. So – Think about it. Think about your relationships and don't just assume that your problems are your partner. They might very well just be your emotions and your emotional inability to manage those emotions. Emotional intelligence, as we wrap it up, is very basically just a few skills. Emotionally intelligent people recognize their own emotion and they know how to lower them and manage them and make them healthy. Emotionally intelligent people also know how to recognize the emotion of others and they know how to help those people lower their emotion. And emotionally intelligent people also know how to enroll people into their emotions and get people to buy into their good emotions. So if you are having relationship problems, can I suggest, especially if you can't, you seem like you can't get any progress going, don't – maybe stop trying to work on your partner and instead just start learning some emotional intelligence skills, managing your own feelings, trying to not – be so fearful 
trying to operate out of your highest self, your best self, that essence, that goodness that's inside of every one of us when we choose to be good. Anyway, emotional management 101, basic stuff, right? We'll take a break, come back, and be talking uh, money and how your brain plays tricks with you when it comes to how you spend your money. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and see the good in the world. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Why is budgeting such a challenge for some of us? Well, you know, money isn't uh, hard because of the math. Sometimes it's the psychology that trips us up. How we can retake control of our minds and our wallets. Here to tell us the cognitive biases that lead to bad money decisions and how to overcome them is blogger Kristen Wong. Uh, Kristen, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. You bet. This I I love the article. It's um, because I, I love I love our thinking, right? I love how our brain works and sometimes doesn't work. But you call them their cognitive biases, and why don't you um, talk to us about what a cognitive bias uh, is, and uh, and then maybe start walking us through what are some of the the ways we think and how they impact actually how we spend our money or manage our money. Sure. Well, cognitive bias is just you know, the thing that your brain does when it works against you. So maybe you want to do one thing, but your brain kind of, just because that's human nature, works in a totally different way. So I'll give you an example. Um, Probably the most common cognitive bias when we're talking about personal finance is the sunk cost fallacy. And the sunk cost fallacy is like when you're going to a store, let's say, and you're shopping for, um, I don't know, let's say you're shopping for a wireless keyboard or something, yeah. and you go to the store, you're searching for it, you, you search high and low, you can't find the one you're looking for, but you, you're at Best Buy anyway, and you say, well, I've already spent all this time here. I have to buy something because I don't want to waste <laughs> my time because that's the sunk cost. You're wasted time, right? Yeah. So, um, so from the sunk cost fallacy, then you end up buying something like, I don't, you know, some impulsive item uh, at Best Buy that you don't really need but you feel like you are making a good financial decision because of the sunk cost fallacy because you didn't think that cost. So that's probably the most popular example. Oh, yeah. No, I've done that too. Just like you, you, you take time off and, you know, to, because you have vacation time, but then you don't want to, oh, I have time off. This is, I don't want to waste the time off. So, and then you end up doing something you don't like anyway. I mean, we, we do this all the time and we don't even think about it, do we? Right. That's the thing is it, it, it's, it comes, um, you know, second nature. I, I think uh, I'll give another example of when, I, when I've done, the, you know, use the sunk cost style because that's kind of a basic example. Um, but like recently we moved into a new house and um, I paint the bathroom the wrong color paint. And um, instead of just starting over and, and getting the right paint, I just wanted to buy more of the wrong paint and paint <laughs> the rest of the room in the wrong color. And that's totally the sunk cost fallacy in action. <laughs> And, you know, that's more of a wasted time and effort example than wasted money. But it can be wasted money if, like, I have to go back later and redo all of that. So you might as well do it right the first time. But I think some cost gets in the way and clouds our judgment. Well, yeah, you've already bought bought two cans. You may as well just get two more. (laughs) You're halfway there. Oh, wow. 
It's it's true, and it's I guess the dilemma is um, because we we we're not actually noticing our own thinking as we're as we're doing this. So we actually feel like I guess we're being efficient or effective or financially smart. But in the end, it's going to cost you more. And if anything, it just might cost you energy of not liking your paint. Right, exactly. So it's it's not worth it. And I think we know that, like when we think logically, but our, our brains just work, you know, kind of work against us sometimes. Um, another one that I think trips people up a lot is choice supportive bias. And that's kind of like, I mean, uh, confirmation bias. I'm not sure if you're, you know, familiar yeah. with that, but that's confirmation bias is basically when you already you already have an opinion and you look for um, facts and uh, data that supports the opinion you already have. So choice, choice supportive bias is kind of like that, but with your purchasing decision. So when you splurge on something, you basically try to justify it. Like you, you'll go through all of the, you know, uh, justifications like, well, I'll give an example. I bought a wedding dress recently. I'm getting married in October and it was way more than I wanted to spend. And it was totally an impulsive, like I was, I felt pressured into buying it. And instead of just returning it and getting it over with, I just kept using this choice supportive bias and thinking like, oh, well, you know, my granddaughter will use this someday. And that may be true, but I was totally just using that as a justification. So I think that happens a lot with spending. Oh, we totally do that. And then they call it buyer's Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Because you're 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 being abused, I guess, but you actually commiserate with your abuser. Exactly. That's I love that. It's so funny. But yeah, it's it's like you are saying like, no, it's okay. You know, I I, I know that I was pressured into this and I bought it, but I, I actually do need it. It's yeah. okay. They were right. So, I've done that like with a door to door salesman. You you know you're just getting played. But in the end, you're like, I did, I might have cockroaches. So, you know, it'll make everyone happy. It's, we really, um, it's almost the rationalization, isn't it? What you're bringing up is we just have this habit of rationalizing everything. Right. And I think these are things that people already understand that they do. But when you, uh, you know, put a name on it or put a label on it, like choice supportive bias, it helps you understand the psychology of it a bit more. And when you understand how your brain is working, then you can combat it, right? So then you you understand why you're doing the things you do, and it makes it a lot easier to not do those things. Right. Uh, Another example you gave, um, it was after college, you were intent on paying off your student loans. I turned a blind eye to my 401k match by my employer. I navigated my finances, budgeted for my debt payoff goal, and committed to it. When a coworker mentioned that I was leaving money on the table, I refused to see his point because you had already made the decision to pay your debt off. Right. Yeah. So I was. That was another choice supportive bias. I was looking for data and facts and opinions that supported the choice I already made because I didn't want to have to, you know, think about all the mess of investing, which really is not that hard. But, you know, it just it was not a choice that I had made. So I didn't want to hear it. (laughs) It's so true. Uh, We bought a we bought a bigger house with a bigger yard, but we did it because we have a family and the family. We're all going to go play in the yard. And even when I'm walking around the house thinking, I never want to mow this lawn. um, But we needed the house. We needed the house. So it, it almost didn't matter what they brought to us. We were going to skew it to to fit our you know our mental model yes man that's we're pathetic what is our deal Kristen? (laughs) well we're just human that's exactly right huh we're just people another one you talk about is anchoring bias 
Uh, talk mm-hmm. us through that one. What does anchoring bias mean? So anchoring bias comes into play a lot with um, shopping and I would say like negotiation. Um, with shopping, it's like that anchoring bias is that thing where you go to a restaurant and you see a burger that's like $20 and you think, oh, there's no way I'm going to spend $20 on a burger. That's ridiculous. But then suddenly the $14 salad looks really cheap and affordable. <laughs> so that's anchoring. So they anchor you to the expensive thing. Yeah. And um, and then you, you, you go, you know, maybe you look at something else and it looks a little bit more appetizing. Um, and then they do this in, with salary, you know, negotiation or just negotiating anything. Also, um, they'll throw out a number and then, you know, let's say that you were you're interviewing for a job and you were thinking it's going to be more like 40,000 starting off and they throw out a number like 20,000 and you think, wow, I should have never I can't believe I was even thinking 40,000. So all of a sudden you lowball yourself. Yeah, so that's anchoring bias in action. And they use that a lot. It seems like on menus. Right. So you, you get you get your head stuck on a number and then it's mm-hmm. the, the minute they've already anchored you to a number, then you're not going to you're not twisting it anywhere. Right. You're done. <laughs> Man, alive. And the funny thing about a lot of this is to, to us, this psychology seems so new, right? Like these might be new ideas to us, but to the marketers of the world, they know you have, you know, an anch- they know that they can use an anchoring bias. They know that you have choice supportive bias. They know you have sunk cost fallacy. I mean, they, they know you're using these things naturally. Oh, for sure. They've been using this forever. And it's actually, I mean, you can't blame them. That's what they do. Right. But it's really interesting to, like, I think I block quoted um, something from an actual advertiser that was saying, this is what people do with sunk cost fallacy or whatever the bias was. And just to hear how or read how advertisers sort of use it against or use it to manipulate you is really fascinating. Like, you, you're almost, like, impressed by it, you know? <laughs> It's so, it's it's so sad, and you, it, we really are. I guess a lot of us are. We just are. We're very predictable. We're predictable, yeah. and um, and which I guess is healthy and good, but it also maybe screams that we probably need to start paying a lot more attention to how we think and what we're doing. Yeah, but I think being predictable is also a good thing. Yeah, you can predict your own behavior, and I think when you try to deny it and say, "I'm that I don't have these biases," I'm you know a superhuman. Uh, that doesn't really work because we are human, and we only have you know so much willpower. And it's better to underestimate. It's better for your finances to underestimate it than to overestimate yourself. Mm. Talk about the bandwagon effect. That I mean, I play. Oh man, I get sucked into this one all the time. That it, yeah. okay? Go ahead, explain it to us. <laughs> so the bandwagon effect is um, basically when you do you do something because that's what everyone else is doing, and that's fine. You don't need to save for retirement when you're thirty because none of your friends are saving for retirement. Right. I mean, why why bother? You're doing you're doing what everyone else is doing, and you're fine. Um, the example I used in the article was. I wanted to buy a car after college and, you know, everybody has a car payment and I figured, well, I'll just buy a new car, get a car payment, do what everybody else is doing. And my dad was like, why don't you just save up and buy a used car? Just save your money and pay it in cash. And I was like, are you crazy? Nobody pays their <laughs> car in cash. I'll just have a car payment. But he's, he was right, you know, and, you know, that decision is depends on a lot of different financial factors. But the point is, you don't always have to. Sometimes the better financial decision isn't what everyone else is doing. And that sounds so obvious, yet 
we always hop on the bandwagon and we compare our decisions to what everyone else is doing instead of what might be financially sound for our situation. Mm. Sandra, we had uh, the neighborhood was swarmed by door to door salespeople trying to sell me solar panels for my home. <laughs> and um, I would never even have thought of that. Uh, I don't know. It just not that I don't love Mother Earth. But um, one of the things they said is, well, you know, so the Joneses are doing it. The, and they listed all these people in the neighborhood that are that are having their house reviewed to see financially if it's worth it. And I'm like, oh, well, oh, really? They're, oh, oh, well, yeah, then let's, yeah, let's do the assessment. So they, they assessed and then, but every time they'd come talk to us, um, they were always telling us what everyone else were, what the rest were doing. And I'm sitting there thinking, these are smart men and women. These people, that guy's an engineer and he's going to do it. And all of a yeah. sudden, I'm, I'm almost being convinced by simply the mere fact that others are involved, that this is brilliant. And then I'd go talk to him. And they're like, yeah, I don't think I'm doing it. <laughs> oh, well, if you're not doing it, I'm not doing it. Um, but it's it's almost like we we need the security of everyone else, right, before we go make a big mis- a big decision. Or like there's security in knowing that everybody else has a car payment, but mm-hmm. that's nuts, right? Right, because if you all if it, it you know goes down, you all go down yeah, together. At least we go together. Be fine. And you know, solar panels could be a you know a good financial sure. decision for you could save you a lot of money over time. But the fact that they're trying to get you to do it because your neighbors are doing it just shows you how effective the bandwagon effect can be because then you don't, uh, you know, you don't want to be left out. They're making a good decision and you don't want to be left out of a good decision. So then it starts looking better to you. Well, and, and, the, and the, the positive is true too, right? So if I'm at my 401k meeting and I see everybody signing up for the 401k, it might get me to sign up for it too. And that could be That's good for true. me, right? That's very true. The, the bandwagon effect, any of these biases can actually work in your favor. The key is just looking at them logically and objectively and understanding what your brain is doing. And then, you know, it's not the, the, the answer isn't to do exactly the opposite of what is human nature to do. It's just to think about it objectively and make, the, make a good financial decision based on the facts and reality rather right. than – your, you know, your mind playing tricks on you. The last bias you brought up in your article is called the status quo bias. Is this mm-hmm. just we, we just do what we've been doing? Right, exactly, because it's uncomfortable to do otherwise. And like you mentioned the investing earlier, um, when I didn't start my 401k, that was, you know, partially choice supportive bias. I didn't want to because I already made the choice. But also it was that's also it was also very uncomfortable to have to learn all that and do something new. I mean, investing seems very overwhelming. And actually, it's it's pretty simple and it's pretty easy to understand. But you have to open the 401k, then you have to read about index funds, you have to do all this. So status quo bias is just you find a reason not to do the thing you're doing because you're afraid of being uncomfortable. Not that you're lazy, you're just afraid of being uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, it, it comes into investing a lot. I think people, um, it's so overwhelming that they just tell themselves, oh, well, investing is uh, is risky. It's too risky for me. Yeah. When, you know, in fact, it's really not that risky, you know, over time if you look at the data. But it's just an easy way. It's just a status quo bias in action. It's an easy way to justify the fact that you're not doing it and you have your money in like a low interest savings account. Yeah. Well, and like you, I could see you made a financial decision many years ago and, you know, I'm going to have this much insurance, but as your family grows and your life changes, 
I guess there's a point you gotta you can't just keep going with what you've been going with. You gotta actually open your brain up and be thinking. Yeah, I think a lot of times there is some impetus that uh, you know motivates you to change that bias. Um, but it would be awesome if you didn't need that and you could just think, well, maybe I'm doing this because I'm uncomfortable with it and just go for the uncomfortable thing. But of course, we don't right. like to do that. No. No, no, no. That's hard. Uh, is there anything we can do just as we wrap up? Is there anything we can do about these biases? Is, it, is there something we can do to to stop it? Well, you know, I really there are some you know small tips here and there, but I think the biggest thing is to just recognize it. Just read about it. Be aware of how your brain is working, and admit that money is has a lot more to do with behavior and psychology than it does math. Because I think a lot of times we get tripped up on the numbers and we, we think that it's about God, my budget is just something's wrong with it. The budget's wrong. I got to redo my budget when really right. it's no, you just have to fix your habits and your behavior. And if you can focus on that um, and just recognize it, it'll change. It'll change a lot. That's good. Good stuff. Well, Kristen, we appreciate you and your great uh, work. And we suggest everybody go check out Kristen's website, kristenwong.com. KristenWong.com, where you can get more of her great articles. Um, she's a wonderful writer, and you can find her all over. She's she's published everywhere. So uh, we'll take a break. Come back, folks. Again, it's about thinking about your thinking. That's, that's huge. It's important. We'll take a break, come back, and continue our own little uh, discussion here. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It really is interesting how we don't ever evaluate our thinking. You know, sometimes we just go in and, well, I'm here. I may as well pick up a few more things. Great. Super efficient, however, it might end up costing you. Um, and so, you know, it's one thing. We got, we got to make sure we're paying attention. We got to make sure our head is in the game. And one of the goals of the show is to give you just more insight, more ideas into how your head works and how you think and feel. It's also to help you see the good in the world. And as we just have only a few more minutes um, of this uh, hour, I, I wanted – I found the just – these are just one of these happy moments I find. And I'm checking out, I think, Facebook or something, and I found – this cute little story about a boy in a bathtub and his dad's bathing him and mom's filming with uh, the phone. And he just has the funniest laugh you've ever heard that it made me happy. So uh, this is I – I just wanted to share it. Here we go. <laughs> now, listen to the parents. You got to watch his face. He sounds like he's crying. The reality is life's hard. You know, you got to pay the bills. You're worried about all of these issues. And then you go put your kid in the tub and you're just bathing your kid and you have this really pure, perfect little family moment. Right? That's what it's about right there, right there. Everything else aside, it's about moms, dads, babies, kids, time, family, love. That's what it's about. <sighs> I usually think life's hard and then you die. 
Yeah. That usually helps out pretty That's why we don't give you a microphone, Ben. Well. (laughs) You, um, it's good, Ben. It's good. Then you don't always die. Sometimes you just get to bathe your kids. Fun stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Wrap up the last hour. We're there, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We found an interesting story out of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Listen to this. A minimum security prisoner escaped from a halfway house in Alaska and then after getting away, decided to come back three hours later, uh, but not to turn himself in. State troopers say 20-year-old Joshua Yaska returned with an SUV and tried to help other inmates flee the facility in Fairbanks. Staff members say uh, Yaska was spotted leaving on a bike just after 1 a.m. Sunday, and the trooper said he returned about 4.20 a.m. By the way, somehow found an SUV. Just apparently somebody had left it for him, donated it, and tried to aid in the escape of other inmates. Authorities say he tried to uh, strike the, uh, a halfway house employee with the vehicle. And anyway, they, they caught up with him that night after he broke into a relative's home. Now, we're trying to, as we were talking about the story with our team, we decided, you know, sometimes when you make a plan, it sounds better. Like it, it, it seems like it's better in your head. Then it really gets rolled out, you know, as you're as you're trying to break everyone out of the prison. And we we thought that uh, when it comes down to it, that he he probably thought it was going to be more like a Braveheart moment. Would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take Oh, yeah, see, see, he thought it was going to be like that, this Braveheart moment where he just he would motivate them and they were all pumped up. and They're like, yes. And then they storm out of the building. Uh, it actually ended up sounding more like this. And then he was arrested. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it sounds a lot better. Like you are free men. And it's more like, (laughs) we're coming to get you. Yeah. It always looks better when you when when you're thinking it through. Hey, you guys, I'm breaking you out. (sighs) That's the problem with being a criminal today. You got to think it through. And yet you may not have the capacity to think it through. Hmm. See? This is why you got to be careful, kids. It's uh, it's never it's never going to be pretty. Um, as we talk on the show so many times um, and and get into life, it's it's always harder than we think it's going to be. I mean, think about it. When in your life has it ever just been easy? Like ah, holy cow, life is so easy. Because if if the minute you're thinking, man, life is easy, it seems like you're setting yourself up for something big to happen. Have you ever felt like that? The minute you start to think, boy, this is a cakewalk. 
Or the minute you think that school, for example, is just, oh, it's so, boy, I am loving what I'm doing. Then all of a sudden, something weird will happen. And it might even be good, like a promotion. Now, all of a sudden, you get a promotion. So no longer do you just get to be you know, a great salesperson. You now get to manage eight other salespeople, which is so great because, right, it's more money. And then you start hearing them tell the stories about how their car didn't work, so they missed the appointment, and then it didn't. <sighs> if there's anything I've learned in life, just give it time. If it's too easy, it'll get harder. If it's too hard, give it time because guess why? It'll get easier. The great benefit of life um, and, and things that we think are easy, things that we think are hard, just give it time because in the end, it'll get, it'll get better. It always does. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Gordon B. Hinckley, who was once a president of uh, the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church that uh, runs BYU, owns BYU. And one of um, his great uh, quotes that he's, he's so known, known for is um, simply keep trying, be believing, be happy, don't get discouraged, things will work out. Be happy. Keep at it. Keep believing. Be happy. Don't get discouraged. Things will work out. So if you've ever doubted, folks, take a big, deep breath. Things will work out. Just give it a few more days. Don't give up. Just get busy. Get working on it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, You know, it's funny. So I used to be a business consultant. I used to travel the country and teach leadership skills and tools to people. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I'm telling you, one of the big names that came up all the time was Rosabeth Moss Cantor. She is a leadership guru. And um, interestingly, her background also is in sociology. So that's why she kept mentioning that, you know, she's a people person. This is about people. She's not just a, you know, an infrastructure wonk that just loves the political and the um, the civil engineering of infrastructure. She's not like that. She understands it's about people. And so as as we do this little coach's corner right now, I want you to be thinking about your own life, your own infrastructure. My my family, um, we're going on a trip to – I'm not telling you where. It's a private little thing. We're going on a little vacation. The people we're sharing a condo with or a cabin with, um, they said it's going to be about a five-hour drive. Well, none of us checked. None of us checked. We just trusted them. And uh, – Come to find out, it's about an eight-hour drive. You know, three more hours to the drive. What's the big deal? But in the end, uh, three hours is a big deal. So how we figured this out is we just pulled out our phone and got our Google Maps out and entered in the address and found the exact route, three routes actually, to this location. And each route has a different kind of terrain, but it also has different roads. And from two-lane highways to, you know, nicer highways and and better infrastructure. And I'm sitting there thinking, that was not even possible 50 years ago to even necessarily 
find it that quickly, have every turn off, everything figured out, you'd still have to go find a map. If you found a map, you probably wouldn't have the right map at the right level of detail that you would need. So you'd probably need to go get four maps or three maps. And so think about how much life has changed. Now in one app in my hand, I can figure it out and find it. But do I use that technology? Do I use that to make my life better? Uh, one of the things that Dr. Rosabeth Moss-Cantor has talked a lot about is the probably the number one innovation in infrastructure is the cell phone. The cell phone is changing the entire game because now there's all of these apps that we can use to lead our lives by. But if you're not using the apps, if you're not figuring out how to work it, and if you're not voicing to the app makers what your desires are, your needs are, if you're not innovating, then you, again, might be part of the problem. Really quickly, she gave us six keys to leading positive change, but she never went through all of them. Let me just give you the six keys so you can be thinking about it. And again, go find this. Um, she has a, a TED Talk on this. She's wonderful. Uh, just go look up under Rosabeth Moss Cantor. Her first rule is show up. Get your voice in the game. Be present. Don't just complain. Get in the game. Um, be an example. Make yourself available. Be present. Get in the game, right? Show up. Number two, speak up. When you're there, use your voice. I'm using my voice on, as a radio talk show host to help educate you on this. You use your voice, whatever your circle of influence is. If it's just, you know, if it's a church member, share your ideas with your friends and family at church. If it's just, if it's a parent, share it with your kids. Teach your kids about better uh use of technology to influence the infrastructure. Teach your kids about the complexity of these issues so that they can become thought leaders and um, and make a difference. Third, look up, meaning look to your higher principles and your values. There's a bigger vision to life than one more freeway. When, you're, when your school is trying to take out a bond for the school, there's more to life than another bond for one more school. Is there a way in that bond to actually have other technologies created instead of just a building? Is there a way to start having other values become and in play? Also identify what your values are, and if, you know, if you're a religious type of person, make sure your, those values are also being used in, um, in, these, in the idea making. Fourth, team up. Everything goes easier when you have partners. Nothing is more difficult than if you have to do it on your own, so start finding the leverage partners to make a difference. Companies are doing this. Political leaders are doing this. If you want to make a change in any way, you got to eventually team up with the people that know what they're doing. And once you team up with people that know what they're doing, you know, there might be a cost associated with that, but there's also a benefit. Number five, she teaches us never give up. Everything that you, the, uh, everything will look like a failure when you're in the middle of it. So don't give up. Just keep going. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Giving up is the failure. Just stick at it. Uh, Nelson Mandela stuck at it 27 years. And before he gave up and finally lift others up, share your successes with others. Make sure you're lifting the human race and making life better. Look out for the little people as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. Life is good. And we sit here, we get so caught up in the news. But meanwhile, there's just a family from Arlington that's running a site and uh, for 3D printing of prosthetic hands. Right. And they're not again, they're, they're not bionic. They're not. Sometimes the plastic doesn't work. 
they're they're strung together and made functional by you know strong fishing line um so they're not perfect but what they've created is a community and it, i really feel like it's it's the model it, it is the model of of charity we've seen it uh on the show we try to bring you a lot of these people so that you can see the good that's going on out there but this world's going to be changed by by groups of people by communities of people it's no longer going to be done by one person. So we, we spend all of this this time on Trump and on Clinton, and yet the world's going to be changed by more people like the Owens that we just heard from. Uh, Margaret Mead has a great quote that says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So... You're a part of that community, and um, everybody's got something to offer. Again, the community is more valuable than probably um, some of the things that we we might hope to have happen. I mean, I would love this charity, uh, enablingthefuture.org, to be able to move much faster than it is, for example, um, to you know improve the lives of thousands or millions of people if possible. But really, in a way, that the community has to go at the community's pace. It has to go at, a, at their speed. Um, and the benefit of it going at that speed is that eventually that uh, community will be able to sustain itself and grow itself. And it will grow so organically that it will probably have a better impact on life and on, um, on its purpose, on its goal. When we think about all this technology and, and the, how it enables us, how it takes us to a completely different level, what what are you doing with it personally? Um, it, it's, it can be to your advantage. It can be to your disadvantage. And we always have on the show the people that come and talk to us about technology and how it's, we end up wasting our time and how we might be able to take better advantage of it. But simply finding a community – we also talk about the fact that a lot of our, uh, us feel like we're being, you know, we're becoming more and more solo uh, creatures because of technology. It's not actually broadening my circle. It's making me, you know, be impacted by what others are doing and then I pull away and are, you know, depressed because I don't have a boat because <laughs> I just looked at my friend's Facebook page and he just took his kids out on a boat and I don't even have a boat. Um, the reality is, though, again, it's this is another example from – enablingthefuture.org, that you can go belong to a, a bigger community. So imagine that you're just – imagine you're uh, an engineer and you've always loved putting you know the, the furniture together from Ikea and that always has been exciting for you. But you hardly you, – you've bought all the furniture you need. Where can I use my talents? Um, maybe you have kids that are no longer in scouts so you can't build the Pinewood Derby car for them anymore. <laughs> That's many fathers – are known to do. So what you might be able to do with some of your great skills is to reach out and find a community. We're all members of a greater community, right? And if we could find a way to go take our talents, our gifts, and hook into an organization like enablingthefuture.org, it's a chance to give back to the world. It's a chance to serve. It's a chance to then use your gifts, your talents, the things that are unique to you. I'm not an engineer, so if I became a part of this community, 
I would probably just be a cheerleader on the side, uh, maybe a fundraiser, but I wouldn't be one that's that's innovating the device or the the the, the design. But that's not my role. But there are designers that would be great there. So don't get down. Don't get discouraged when it comes to all of this technology, when it comes to um, what you can offer the world, because really what you can offer the world is just you. And if we can find ways to to get into these types of situations or create some of them out of BYU, we've seen some pretty amazing stories, including uh, the design of wheelchairs um, that were just made out of PVC pipe. Um, that are incredible for people. There's just no end to the the needs of the world and your gifts and your abilities. So don't just sit back and think you're done because you're retired. Don't sit and think that, you know, because you're a stay-at-home parent that, that you know, that's that's enough maybe. Maybe what you could do is if you're still being called to go innovate, if you're still being called to use your talents, your gifts – you know, your degrees, go find a charity, go find some community to be a part of. It could be your church community. It could be giving back to your school community on the PTA. There's so many ways that this world needs you. And maybe that is the fastest way to create a better world. It's it's probably not through political, you know, drive. And it's probably not going to happen through just a business endeavor. Um, don't ever look away from the idea that it might just simply be giving back, serving, and being a member of a community. Powerful, powerful things create uh, these, these wonderfully powerful charities. But the, the thing that's probably most important is a person that cares, a person with a heart that wants to belong and wants to do what they can. And that, I believe, is you, my friends. So we'll take a break, come back, uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show helping you see the good in the world, and helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, nothing seems more real than the minds of other people, right? Uh, when when you consider what your boss is thinking or whether your spouse is happy, you're admitting them into the mind club. And it's easy to assume other humans can think and feel about, what a, about a cow and a computer and a corporation. But uh, what kind of minds do they actually have? Have you ever noticed when a child dies, incredibly sad for you, for example, when an animal dies, like Harambe the, the gorilla died, um, or Cecil the lion died, it, it's, it, it really rocks our world. And here to explain about our minds and about his book called The Mind Club um, and why these things impact us so strongly is Dr. Kurt Gray. He is an assistant professor of social psychology at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and we're honored to have him on. Dr. Kurt Gray, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. What an interesting topic. I saw an article um, that you were cited in about Harambe and Cecil and why we mourn so uh, the death of these animals so intensely. Help us understand, and then get into some of your concept around the Mind Club, what's going on in our heads that make these, these events so impactful? Yeah, so uh, my research reveals that 
when we we think about the minds of others, um, we actually bin people into or animals into two different kinds of minds. One of those kinds of minds is a kind of thinking doer, so think presidents and CEOs um, and people who you know do things, active things, and think about it. And then the other half are are things that are vulnerable feelers, right? Things that uh, are the the victims of suffering or the beneficiaries of helping. And when we bin people into um, the vulnerable feelers camps, that's when our heart really goes out to them. And this is why when children get injured or animals, animals seem so helpless and vulnerable. And when they get harmed, we feel uh, really bad about it. And the funny thing is, is when people get harmed who are thinking doers, like uh, presidents or CEOs, we, we seldom shed a tear, even though we may explicitly know that they have a mind. Interesting. So our mind is, is binning, as you call it, categorizing people into, into two categories, thinking doers, vulnerable, is it vulnerable feelers? That's right, yeah. And if, if we see or perceive somebody as a feeler or a vulnerable feeler, then I guess the, the outcome is compassion, more um, sensitivity towards them. But if we sense that they're more of a thinking doer, we just we feel less for them. Exactly. And the, the way we see other minds depends upon the other minds around them. So Harambe the gorilla is a perfect case. So there's really some ambiguity of whether, um, you know, when he's standing next to the little boy, the little boy was clearly a vulnerable feeler. Right. So that makes some of us think that Harambe is really a thinking doer, and so we think that his death is justified in some sense. But then if we think of Harambe next to the adult zookeepers, then Harambe really seems like a vulnerable feeler because he's harmed by them. And so there's this ambiguity in how we perceive the minds of others. Wow. And, and it is, I guess, in contrast to the scenario, I mean, and the, and the situation that they're in. But it, in a way, I guess it just means we're very, we're very able to make them anything we need them to be. Exactly, yeah. So uh, lots of research show that when we perceive minds, it's very, it's very motivated. So if we, you know, if we pass by a homeless person and we, we don't want to donate money, right, because we don't have any or we want to buy something else, we're going to the movies and we have money just for a ticket, then we take away the mind from the homeless person. We think, well, he's, he's not really suffering. He's not really a vulnerable feeler. He's a thinking doer. He's there because, you know, he did something to deserve that. Hmm. And, and, I mean, so... In a way, this, this in essence, is our morality, right? This becomes our judgment of right or wrong. And I guess our, our ability to keep switching it just goes back and forth. And it's not always – it's not even really based on the real data. It's just based on the data we're selecting. Exactly. So, I mean, you could argue that there's some real data, right? So no one thinks that, that a puppy is morally responsible for, you know, this, the stock prices right. dropping. Right, but, right. Uh, there is a lot of flexibility, Wow. So talk to us. In your book, you bring up uh, – you call it the Mind Club, and um, it just explain kind of the concept behind the book and, and how we use that in our lives. Yeah. So the, the Mind Club is just that kind of collection of, of entities that we acknowledge has a mind. And so um, there's this old philosophical problem called the problem of other minds. And the idea is that you know that you have a mind, right, because you're inside your mind. If I poke you, you feel pain and you feel love. You look at the sunset, right, you feel the right. emotions. But 
when you look at another person, you can't directly experience their mind. You just have to, to make your best guess that they do have a mind like you. Um, and philosophers talk about the problem of zombies, and these aren't the kind of brain-eating ones we, we think about today, but a kind of philosophical zombie is when someone looks like they have a mind, but there's nothing going on behind their eyes. They're like a robot. Um, and so the mind club is really just about who we kind of uh, perceive to have a mind and who we acknowledge to have a mind and sometimes who we acknowledge not to have a mind. And does this um, – as I sit there and I'm kind of interpreting and making these, you know, these decisions, I mean, I guess – why why are we doing this as human beings why do we why why have we created this interpretive view of others and what does it give us you know for those that are in our mind our mind club right so what what it gives other people in the mind club is a kind of moral protection right and moral blame but the the reason we see minds in the first place in an evolutionary sense is because it allows us to better predict people's behavior so if I just thought of you as a, as a, as a total zombie, um, then the, the best I can kind of get about your, your behavior is kind of physical things. Like your hand moved this way, I'm going to pay attention to its mass and momentum, and it might move this way later. Right? It's not very useful to right, think of humans right. that way. Instead, we think of them in terms of intention. Right? You want something. That's a, a mental state, something that a mind has, and then you're going to do something to get it. And so that allows us to predict people's behavior much better. Man, I mean, because really we do this all the time with, you know, so, okay, so these people are Christians, they believe in God, these people are gay, they have a different mindset, uh, these people are, you know, these, these people are liberals. We, we're always breaking people into these groups, and then do these groups, we automatically uh, we, we then can affiliate better with and we feel like they're safer with us or not? Yeah, I think it gives us a chance to better understand them. But one interesting thing with groups, so, you know, we have a chapter on the group, which is kind of interesting, is that the more you perceive a mind in the broader group, so if you think of like gay people or liberals or Christians, right, as a group, the more you kind of take mind away from individual members and give it to the entire group. Hmm. Um, and so one example that's very strong is uh, when group members are very similar and, and look the same. So if you think of sheep, right, we think of, you know, a flock doing things, but never individual sheep. And the same is true with, um, with people in like a, a military platoon, right? They're wearing uniforms. They all have the same haircut. Right. Right. And then we think of their movements together, but seldom what, you know, Private Jones is thinking. Interesting stuff. Is this, um, I mean, and I guess there's no way to not do this. I mean, in, in some sense. This is just thinking, mind, right? Yeah, is, is one of the most basic things we do. But, I mean, there's ways to prevent us from doing things like taking away mind from those who are different than us. Right? We can remind ourselves that they have the same feelings. But it's really hard because a lot of these processes are automatic. Yeah. And I mean, and they're, um, are, they're not even necessarily accurate. I mean, my, a, a human, I'm assuming, my perception of mind as I look at an animal and I assume what their perception of mind is about, I mean, we're not even on the same page, are we? Hey, animals are, are a really tough case. And, you know, you get these, these incredible reversals of mind perception that 
that are different from what we objectively acknowledge, right? So someone could walk by a homeless person on the way to buy a $100 sweater for their dog, right? right. So we explicitly acknowledge, look, people have more mind than animals, and we do this when we eat animals, right? But there's something about sometimes our pets that we think that they have much more mind than, um, than refugees, right, or all yeah. sorts of different people. That's interesting stuff. Um, Let's take a break. We're speaking again with Dr. Kurt Gray, who is um, author of the book The Mind Club, and he is also an assistant professor of social psychology at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's he's walking us through the power of – and and processing of our mind and how we perceive others and uh, and how we, I guess, infer to others what what we think – their mind is doing. Um, Interesting stuff, folks. Stick with us. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the show is Dr. Kurt Gray from the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, and he is also the author, co-author of the book, The Mind Club, Who Thinks, What Feels, and Why It Matters. Um, he co-wrote that with Daniel Wegner. And Kurt, we appreciate you being back with us. Thanks for helping us uh, at least begin to understand a little bit more about our mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a sometimes confusing topic. It is, and it's, I mean, so really, we are constantly in our mind. Um, and by the way, how would you define the mind? Oh, I get that question a lot, and yeah. uh, it's a tough question. I think I would, I would say the mind is really what you perceive uh, in other people. I mean, you could say it's the ability to, to think and feel maybe most simply. Yeah. And you, and, and we are always kind of constructing our own version of life, of reality. We're always perceiving and having to interpret and make up interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand how we do that because the, the work I've done shows that those perceptions and that reality is linked to our our perceptions of morality um, and what we think is right or wrong and who deserves uh, to live or die, whether vegetarianism is you know, just a nutritional choice or murder, um, all rely on things like mind perception. And, um, and again, too, kind of the original part of the story was why when Harambe the gorilla is, is shot while he has a child in his cage – in the zoo, why that is so impactful to others, and others see it as a horrible thing, and uh, and while still at the same time, just as many think, well, of course, we've got to protect the child kind of thing. But this is because it really is our mind, it sounds like, um, that ends up dividing us and unifying us. Yeah, and Harambe is an interesting case, too, because if if there's a gorilla who kills another gorilla in the wild, right, let's say Harambe was killed by an aggressive, dominant gorilla— I think we'd be sad, but we wouldn't have the same kind of sadness or moral outrage when Harambe is killed by a person. Right. And I think that's because of the relative differences in how we perceive their minds. A person is, seems much more powerful and intentional uh, than the gorilla. And again, I guess if we reverse that and a wild mountain lion kills a runner or you know somebody running up in the mountains, I guess we would 
we would feel what? I mean, what? I mean, I guess it, we. I guess it would depend on the person, right? Right. Exactly. So if it was um, like Chuck Norris is running through the hills, <laughs> right, and he gets eaten by a mountain lion, we're like, wow, that wow. must have been an epic struggle. Too bad for Chuck Norris. But if it's a small child, and we think that's terrible, uh-huh. right? and then we well, like the there was a young boy who was killed at Disneyland right. long ago by an alligator, and you know they uh, killed five alligators to find the, the boy's body and then eventually found him at the bottom of the lake. And no one's getting upset about the dead alligators, right? Right. Um, even it's, though... Yeah, because it, it, it was, I guess, in a position of, of uh, you know, that it should have known. I mean, like it was in the powerful position. Right, exactly. And also alligators are just less similar to humans and so we don't get the same kind of mind cues as a as we get from a gorilla and fair enough i mean right, right. i think objectively alligators aren't as smart as gorillas but still the kind of lack of outrage is is notable but then like you're saying we can then take this same kind of theory and and bring it into how we see each other and how we see people with differences or um and and then that creates our moral justification for why we can treat somebody so differently because of how we simply because we perceive them as a threat or as you know not doing something healthy exactly yeah so i mean the the one of the oldest examples is is slavery right so in the u.s when slavery was justified it was justified on the basis of you know these people who are different than us coming from africa they're they have less of a mind they're like livestock we have to protect them and help them but you know they're not thinking doers like you or i Hmm. and you find that um, all over the world, in some sense, when people advocate for for differences across people, um, and again, that's mind perception, right? right? Reflecting their moral judgments. But one of the keys, really, too, is we we get to choose how we're interpreting people, right? Yeah. For, so, so we, we can we slow this process down and actually question our own interpretation and try to gather more real data. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I think that's especially true with humans, yeah. right? Because if you just spend the time to listen to someone right, and you spend the time to talk with someone, it becomes pretty apparent that they have a similar kind of mind that you do. And so you know, it's a very easy way to overcome um, these like political or racial or cultural barriers. Right. With, with things like animals and, and machines, and we talk about people in vegetative states, it's much harder there because, you know, you can't just sit down with a with a dog and talk to it for a little while longer. <laughs> well, some can. Not, yeah, some can. that's true. <laughs> the dog whisper. They're, they're dog psychics, right? They can, right. They can contact your dog beyond the grave, um, and that's more of <laughs> a matter of kind of science. <laughs> right, right. But that's fascinating because then, I mean, I guess that is, I think, one of the reasons why uh, there has been so much strength in the movement for LGBT. It seems like, too, that more and more and more people have more close connection to someone in their life that is that is gay. And it then it starts to change how you see the, the whole process. And then all of a sudden it becomes more acceptable. Yeah, so – Again, going back to the distinction I raised uh, before the break about kind of like thinking uh, intentional uh, doers and vulnerable feelers, uh, you know, I think when we think of people who are different than us, it's very easy to think of them as only thinking doers, as kind of mm-hmm. evil people bent on destruction. So this is what the U.S. did to uh, how they saw the Japanese in the Second World War, right, as um, 
just a kind of robotic race bent on the destruction of America. Um, and I think when we perceive our enemies in political discourse, we think the same way, right? They're just evil and they have no feelings. But then when you talk to people who are different than you, so uh, LGBT folks in this case, you think, well, you know, they're, they really just do fundamentally love their spouse. Yeah. It's the same kind of love that I feel for my spouse. And so, you know, they're not just thinking doers. They're also vulnerable feelers. I mean, and again, there's no end to this. It just seems like issue after issue, immigration, um, you know, and uh, racism. And so part of your say, one of the things you're teaching us is that the mind is doing this supposedly to protect us, to make sure we're safe so there aren't any surprises but really, we may just be creating such an illusion that could fall fall in on us as well. Right. So the mind, kind of mind perception evolved to help us predict the world and uh, give us a better sense of what people are going to do. But at the same time, it's influenced by our motivation. And our motivation is often just to keep the world as we thought it always was. And so there's all these psychological processes in there to reinforce our current beliefs uh, about other people. And so... You know, you find this with, uh, with animals and vegetarianism, for instance, right? If I'm a kind of meat eater, then I think there's no way that they have a mind and nothing you can tell me can convince me. And if you are a vegan, then you think that they have a mind equal to humans in some sense. Mm. There's nothing that I can say to convince you. And so we kind of entrench ourselves in these mind perception positions. Yeah. And then um, I guess, too, then how you're raised, uh, I guess you can be raised in a mindset or raised – in a paradigm. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, parents can sometimes say, well, they, you know, they don't think about it as the same way. And the kind of innocuous interpretation of that is, well, they just have a different opinion. But the, the deeper interpretation could be, well, they don't even think in the same way. They have a less of a mind than we do. And huh. so the kind of subtext of those teachings to children can be very powerful. What is the healthy... Uh, way is there is there a healthy way to raise a child so that their mind can be open and um, and still you know uh, I guess um, fixed on values that you care about that you feel are un- more universal and important. I think you know I think what I try to do in a lot of my my research when I study morality and political differences in morality yeah. is to is to understand that uh, different people have the same kind of moral sense, but they just kind of see it differently. So to unpack that, what that means is we, we all care in morality about protecting vulnerable feelers from harm, right? In all these moral dialogues, it always goes down to, like, think of the children. Right. We have to protect our children. And I think it's important to recognize that everyone on different, you know, religions or different political issues recognize that Children need protecting, but we just think that they need protecting in in different kind of ways. Right. Um, And so I think having that initial common basis between everyone goes a long way. Hmm. And it's um, so. So I mean, some of the I think important news is also the fact that the the concept of agency that we we can evaluate our own thinking, which is. Which is – some would say, well, how do you do that, Kurt? I mean, you'd only use your thinking to evaluate your own thinking. But so how, what are some tools that you'd suggest that would help us evaluate our mind? Well, one of them, uh, very simple, you know, pick up the book because the only way that we can kind of 
become aware of our biases is just by learning about them. So yeah. learning about psychology in general is very useful. Uh, and two, you know, you may be biased if you just kind of sit alone and think in a room, but usually by talking to others, in particular others who don't already share your views, can be really eye-opening. And so an easy way, for instance, is traveling. Uh, I recently went to, to Japan and you know, was very used to American culture, and then I go over there and I recognize that it's not the only way to do it. Um, hmm. You know, people have very different cultures and it can seem strange or foreign, but it's also, you know, legitimate in some sense. Yeah, and different and, and eye-opening. Certainly. And um, it's so interesting how much of this world's pain is really just minds battling to stay the same. And, right, ignoring other minds. Yeah. Right, so keeping the empathy circle very small around your own group and failing to acknowledge that others feel the same pain that you do, whether that's because it contradicts your your political or religious views or just because it's costly, because you'd have to donate money you know, right. to Syrians if you recognize that they're suffering. Yeah, you'd have to change. Right, exactly. Heaven forbid. Well, interesting stuff, Kurt. We appreciate it. Uh, great insight um, into our minds. And everybody, go check out the book again, The Mind Club, Who Thinks, What Feels, and Why It Matters by Kurt Gray. Thank you so much, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. Keep up the great work and uh, trying to understand the mind. I mean, really. And it just, it's every day. We're making immediate, you know, interpretations, perception. It's going on constantly, and we, we rarely question it. It's just right. And then it even feels right. Oh, it even feels right. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, everybody. To the Matt Townsend Show, a little coach's corner for you. Uh, so our last guest, Dr. Kurt Gray, talks about your mind and uh, the impact it has on life. And when, I, when I'm coaching people in my um, practice, I, the mind really is one of the first big barriers that has to, has to be evaluated, at least, in order to create some movement in order to create a change. Um, it's not just trying to teach them skills. I can teach couples to talk. I can get them communicating. I can get them to maybe hold off before they just blow up and listen to somebody. But there are certain thoughts that are constantly stewing in our lives or in our minds, and those thoughts may um, deeply impact what you do, what you feel. So my basic belief as a coach is that our thinking, whether it's conscious or subconscious thoughts, whether you're actually intentionally thinking about the thought or whether it's just some, you know, some undercurrent belief that you have, it's going to generate feeling. Thoughts tend to generate feelings. Feelings tend to generate doing what you do. And doing tends to generate what you're becoming. And if what you're becoming doesn't jive with what you want to become, then you're going to be out of integrity, which will generate feeling, right, and thoughts. So the pattern goes, thinking, feeling, doing, becoming, over and over and over. So here's some thoughts that you want to make sure you you don't have running through your operating system. And, and just start questioning it, like, what made me go off right here? 
why did I start to act this way? That's what I was doing, yelling, screaming, whatever, um, just pulling away, ignoring my family or my spouse. Why was I doing that? Go back to the feeling behind it. There was something I was feeling. By the way, motivation for those that want to understand motivation, uh, motivation is the feeling that generates the doing, right? Um, so that's there's power in understanding the uh, the feeling and the doing. There's also power, also maybe more power in understanding the thinking behind the feeling. Um, here's an example. Do you tend to have a thought that you don't have a choice in life? You don't have a choice. I've got to do it. Don't even have a choice. I mean, I don't even want to do it, but I've got to go do this job or I've got to go, you know, take my kids to here and this place and that place. So if that is the thought that's underlying it um, and the belief, it's going to generate a feeling. And the feeling is probably obligated, forced. It's going to be an uglier feeling if you don't have a choice to do something, which will then generate how you go do it. Think of how you do something you didn't want to do. So a kid that throws a tantrum up to an adult that, you know, ruins a trip that they didn't even want to go on, um, it, it's going to be acted out. So if you – do you have a thought process that you're trapped? You don't want to do what you're doing. You don't want to be in the life you want to be – you're in. You don't want to be in the marriage you, you're in. Another thought that a lot of people have is that life is easy or life should be easy. And then they're amazed every time it's not easy. So if that's the way that you – if you have a belief that life should be easy – and yours isn't, then you then you obviously think I got to change my life. I got to change it, and you might feel misery even though you got a pretty good life. It's just normal. It's hard. Another belief is um, that uh, the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. Right. So if it's bad now, some people believe it's just it's just that's your life. It's always going to be bad. Or do you believe, you know what, no, life's going to change. Just give it a couple of years. Give it a month. Give it a two. Give it a week. It's going to get better. Do you also believe that uh, everyone else has it better than you do? Right? There's people that believe everyone else just has it better than you do. Um, some people have a belief system that it's just too late, a value system, maybe something in their mind like it's too late. You know, it's too late to change my job. It's too late to become something that I want to become. Some call it just bad luck. You know, I just got bad luck. Bad luck. Everything I touch is, just goes bad. Um, the, some, some think of this optimist. You know, you know what? The situation, it's, it's going to get better. Some have that automatic, you know, reply. Some, no, 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 it's just going to be worse. But whatever your view is, it's yours. And if you, you're going to keep suffering the feelings that come from that thinking and you're going to keep suffering the doing or the lack of doing that come from those feelings and those thoughts. So when I coach somebody, I always ask them to go back and try to evaluate the thought or the, the thought, uh, the feeling, kind of the mood that drives you to keep doing what you're doing. And any time you spend looking at it is valuable. Trust me. Any time. You spend recognizing the thought that's preceding a lot of these feelings you have, the better off you're going to have. You're going to actually find a way to turn this around. That's the Coach's Corner, my friends. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More fun, more ideas to help you live longer. We'll be right back. 